This is a full circle podcast connecting ideas with the power to act. This podcast is brought to you from our archives at Full Circle Brussels. We're a unique community of thinkers and doers discussing ideas that matter. Today, I'm introducing linguistics expert David Crystal. David Crystal is a foremost writer and lecturer on the English language with a worldwide reputation and over 100 books to his name. He is Honorary Professor of Linguistics at the University of Wales, Bangor, and in 1995 was awarded the OBE for services to the English language. David has been a consultant, contributor or presenter on several radio and television programmes and series on the English language. Sit back and enjoy the talk. Mm. Hello. Mm. I don't like the way he's looking at me. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's a delight to be here. It really is. Um, and uh, are you aware that there's a Twitter storm going on at the moment, uh, pointing out that, that uh, there's me here and there's also Marks and Spencers coming? Um, somebody has started this from here. I don't know who it was. Uh, right, thank you. It's out there. It's all over the place now. Marks and Spencers are furious about this, um, being upstaged in this way. Oh, dear. Anyway, thank you. Full circle, yes. Wow, what an organisation. Um, I've never been in a club like this before. I've never seen one like this before. So if I were to say to you that full circle refreshes the parts that other clubs do not reach, how many of you recognise that illusion? Interesting. Uh, everybody over a certain age, <laughs> possibly. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, it's true, because uh, it was, some of you will think it's simply a metaphorical expression of some kind, but no, of course it isn't. If you are over that certain age, or have a grandparent who was over that certain age, who has told you about this, you will remember that it was a slogan of Heineken in the 1970s. The longest running advertising slogan in English advertising history. The original one was, Heineken refreshes the parts that other beers do not reach. The idea behind it was simple. Heineken thought that if they could persuade everybody to buy their lager, they could do so by telling everybody that it would improve your mind, it would improve your body, you'd become a better person generally. <laughs> it refreshes the parts of the body and the mind that other beers do not reach. And it was hugely successful. It lasted for over 20 years as a slogan in Britain. And anybody growing up in the 70s and 80s will remember it because it was part of everyday life. It was headlines. People would play with it in The Guardian and newspapers like that. And it then died away a bit. And then it came back for a second run in the 1990s and still is part of linguistic consciousness now. Now... The way that they made it last for 20 years was by playing with the slogan, of course. It wasn't the same slogan all the way through. This is how it started. It started with situational comedy. So, for example, in one of the earlier uh, campaigns, you saw a three-part poster. In the first part, there was a man looking glumly at his back garden. He hadn't looked after it. The grass had grown up to here. The lawnmower was rusting in the corner. In the second set poster, he pours the lager into the lawnmower. <laughs> and in the third poster, the lawnmower mows the lawn by itself. 
with him sitting back, of course, and drinking another can of lager. Heineken refreshes the parts other beers do not reach, the parts of the lawnmower in that particular example. That's how it started. What's that got to do with language? Nothing. <laughs> but after a while, they decided to make it a linguistic joke. And what they did was they looked for words that could replace the word parts, beginning with P and having one or two syllables in that sort of way. So, for example, a little later, there is now a three-part poster campaign. But this time, in the first poster, you see the hero of Treasure Island, Long John Silver. He is standing there, only he has had a bad time. You know he has a wooden leg, it is fractured. You know he has a crutch to help him around, that too is broken. You know he has an eye patch, the elastic is broken and it's hanging down over his cheek. You know he has a hook for a hand, it's broken. You know he has a parrot, the parrot has had a heart attack and is <laughs> lying over his chest. He is not in a good way. In the second picture, he drinks the lager. And in the third picture now, he's standing there with two wooden legs, <laughs> two crutches, two eyepieces, two hooks. The parrot has turned into a vulture. And the slogan now is, Heineken refreshes the pirates. Other beers do not reach. You get it? Heineken refreshes the parts. Heineken refreshes the pirates. That's how it started. For 20 years, they punned on the word parts. You think there aren't that many words in the English language to allow it? Oh, there are. A little later, the bird drinks the lager in another scenario. The slogan now is, well, you know it already. Heineken refreshes the parrots. Other beers do not reach. A little later, the person who drives an aeroplane gets into trouble, drinks the lager. You know what the slogan is now. The pilots, other beers do not reach. It went on and on and on like that. My favourite is the voiceover on a television campaign that was done, I forget when, you can see it on YouTube, it's around still, um, where you see an 18th century gentleman looking over a lake and you hear the voiceover saying, I can't remember it exactly, but it was something like this. Um, I went down the road with my, f oh no, dear, oh dear, no, no, no. Out I went today in the veil, no, 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 oh dear. And then you hear, <laughs> and then you hear, I wandered lonely as a cloud <laughs> that floats on high o'er vales and hills, where all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils. And the slogan now is, Heineken refreshes the poets. <laughs> Other beers do not reach. Wonderful. The Daffodils. For those of you who don't know, this is a poem that you have to learn in a British primary school at the age of about two, and it sort of <laughs> lasts you forever. You never, never forget it. Wordsworth's poem. So, here we are. A slogan and all its linguistic variations. Now, what has that got to do with the future of English and the future of Englishes? Well, let's fast forward now. Uh, some years from, well, what it be, about 19, late 70s, early 80s. And I'm now teaching on a summer school in somewhere, London, I think. 
And I have a group of Japanese teachers of English who have come to this summer school. And we're going out on the streets looking for authentic English. And we find it all over the place. <laughs> and we pass a poster, and it's the one about the parrot. Heineken refreshes the parrots other beers do not reach. They stop in front of this poster, and they look at it. And then, as Japanese do when they're confused, they talk at a million kilometers an hour to each And I say, excuse me, your problem, your problem? And they say, please, Heineken, refresh parrot? What, what is it? Now, here's a group of English teachers who understand the sentence, no question, the grammar, they have understood it. They were able to pronounce it, they were able to spell it, they knew the punctuation of it, they knew every word in it, and yet they did not understand it. Why not? Obvious, isn't it? Because they don't know the cultural background of that particular sentence. And I had to explain to them, like I just did to you, how it came to be. And the story of the future of English, in a nutshell, is that Heineken story. Because as English has become a global language, now spoken by over two billion people around the world, in places where you would never have dreamt of it turning up and becoming either uh, uh, the first foreign language to be taught there, or if not the first, definitely the second, and spoken by increasing numbers of people as a first or second language, you'd never have thought that it was going to stay the same, and indeed, you would not have anticipated just how much it was going to be different. And the reason for the differences are nothing to do with linguistics, really. It's all to do with culture. As the language arrives in a particular place, people adopt it, then they immediately adapt it to their own cultural background. And as you travel around the English-speaking world, this is what you find. You find cultural adaptations everywhere, and these are the, this is the Heineken problem writ large, if you like. Here's an example. I went to New Zealand. I get off uh, the plane, go into, into the city and so on with my guide, and I see the Yeah Right campaign. Do you know about this? First, what is Yeah Right? Well, you know. Something's happened and you say, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. It means, that's rubbish, that's ridiculous, no, it didn't happen, come on, stop pulling the other leg and all the rest of it. Yeah, right. Got to get it with the right intonation, of course, for it to make that negative kind of impact. So it's a common phrase in the English language. I get off the plane and we go into the city and there I see a billboard. And it's from Tui Beer this time, not Heineken, Tui, which is a New Zealand bird. And it's the name of a very popular beer in New Zealand. And the, bu the billboard says, you can't hear the wind farm from here. And underneath it says, yeah, right. I say, what's this all about? He says, it's the yeah, right campaign. <laughs> what is the yeah, right campaign? Well, apparently, there are ads all over uh, New Zealand at the time, and they're still there, by the way in which you make some sort of fatuous statement or some sort of obvious statement and then underneath you go, yeah, right. I thought, oh, this is lovely. Let's find some more examples. In fact, I didn't need to look for the examples. We simply went into a bookstore and the, the campaign is so famous, there is a book of all the yeah, right posters that there have been. There are now two books of yeah, right posters. <laughs> examples from around 
things like um, uh, the check is in the post. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> of course I remember your name. Yeah, right. One careful lady owner. <laughs> yeah, right. For that one, of course, you need a little bit of cultural background. You have to know that it's a phrase associated with buying a second-hand car, which has had only one careful lady owner, and therefore is going to be in lovely condition. Yeah, right. So I was assimilating this new campaign. And as we turned around another corner, I saw, let Paul fly you there. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm now in the position of the Japanese tour, uh, t English teachers. I look at this, let Paul fly you there. I turn to my guide, what does this mean? He falls over in, in astonishment. You, you don't know what this means? No, no, what does it mean? Who's Paul? Who's Paul? <laughs> you don't know who Paul is? No, I don't know who Paul is. Tell me who Paul is. I had no idea. I was in exactly that Japanese tourist, with the difference that I'm a native speaker of English. And here's my language on a poster, and I don't understand it. Something odd is going on here. I ask, he explains. Turns out this is Paul Holmes. He is the voice of breakfast, radio and television in New Zealand, or at least was at the time. So whichever country we are in or come from, there is somebody you know Reg you listen to them every day. You might even call them by their first name, whoever it might be. In Britain, it might be, oh, I don't know, you know, Jeremy Paxman or John Humphreys or some famous name like that in Britain. But outside, are these people known anywhere, you know? But to you, they're with you every day. Now, this is Paul Holmes. He's apparently so well off, or was, that he bought an aeroplane. And he flew from A to B, and as he landed, crashed it and survived. He bought another aeroplane and flew it from C to D and then crashed it and survived. So, let Paul fly you there? Yeah, right. <laughs> now I understand. Now I understand. And looking at those two books of collected yeah rights containing altogether, I suppose about a couple of hundred, I understood only about half of them. The other half were so culturally specific to New Zealand that I had to have an explanation in order to understand them. Now, New Zealand is not alone. Everywhere you go in the English-speaking world, this is what's happening at the moment, and has been for quite some time now. I got to South Africa. All right, there we are, British Council, driving me around. We're going down the road. There's a sign coming up. Robot ahead. I turn to the driver. <coughs> robot ahead? What's this? He nearly goes off the road. He says, robot? You don't know what a robot is? I said, no, what's a robot? A robot, it's a... He could, he could hardly articulate it. Do you know? Yes, a robot is a traffic light. That's all it is. Local word for a traffic light in South Africa and also Zimbabwe and one or two of the other areas around traffic light. So people use sentences in South African English like, you know, the robot is broken. Turn left at the robot. <laughs> You'll see it three robots ahead. For me, I thought, you know, have they landed? <laughs> no idea. That is one of how many words in South African English are now distinctive to that variety. 
you can get the Dictionary of South African English. It's that thick. <coughs> it contains about 10,000 words and idioms that are idiosyncratic to South African English. Either because they're loan words from British English, like robot, which incidentally started in, in Lancashire when traffic lights were first invented back in the 1920s. It travelled to South Africa, but to no other part of the English-speaking world. Why not? I've no idea. Anyway, uh, to about 10,000 words. Of course, a lot of them are loan words from the other languages of South Africa, from Afrikaans and Zulu and Kosa and all those other languages. And the dictionary is quite big. And that dictionary is now one of dozens of dictionaries as you go around the English-speaking world. So go to the Caribbean, and you hear you get the dictionary of Jamaican English, which contains 15,000 words and idioms from local expressions of one kind and another. Not many of these make the newspapers, but they're still part of the everyday life of that particular part of the world. Wherever you go where English is spoken, you see that immediate adaptation. This is the future of Englishes, if you like. They're calling them Englishes now. Englishes, plural. <laughs> oh, I was in a hotel in oh, some part of southern Europe once, and I come into the hotel lobby, and my talk, which was called The Future of Englishes, was stuck up above the reception in letter-by-letter letter stickies, you know, T-H-E-F-U-T, -E and it said The Future of English. And I said to the uh, ma manager, I said, it's not called that, it's called the future of Englishes. And he looked at me in horror and said, it cannot be, there is no such word. <laughs> I said, no, there is, there is, really, I, I, I want it called. He said, no, there is no word. I said, yes, there is, can I have th my ending, please, E-S. And he goes, okay, it's in, in the office, I expect. And he goes on to the tannoy and says uh, to his secretary, who's listening upstairs, presumably, you know, Professor Crystal has lost his ending. <laughs> <laughs> please send Professor Crystal's ending to reception, please. And sure enough, I thought my ending was fine, but you know. Uh, but he brought suddenly an E and an S comes downstairs and he stick them up, and I'm a happy chappy now because of that. Mm. Wherever you go, these differences are culturally important, and people tend to neglect them. They tend not to recognise them for what they are. The reason is that when, you are, when your language is culturally influenced, because it's so everyday, so routine, you don't even notice that you're saying something that is culturally so idiosyncratic that anybody from outside that culture will not understand it. The distinction between native and non-native speaker is irrelevant here. You know, it's not just foreigners, you see who have trouble with English here, it's native speakers having trouble going to New Zealand and not understanding what's going on. I first discovered this without realising how important it was when I first went to America. And so I'm in my um, hotel area in America and I go downstairs to have some breakfast and I go to the, to the cafe next door, no, sorry, the diner, um, and uh, stand in a queue, no, a line, um, in order to get my breakfast. And I, there's the guy comes up to me and says, what do you want? And I say, can I, can I have some eggs? And this is the 1970s. He says, uh, how do you like your eggs? And I had no idea what to say. <laughs> no idea at all. It wasn't a British question, you see, <laughs> in, in those days. One did not get asked that sort of question then. So I looked at him and I said, um, uh, 
cooked. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, hey, buddy, where are you from? And I said, um, I, I, I'm from Wales. And he looked even more puzzled and said, where, Wales? Is that near Russia? And I said, you know, yes. He said, oh, he thought I was a communist then, I think. I'm not quite sure. Anyway, he then rattled off to me, look, buddy, you can have them once over lightly, sunny side up, and Now I know, you know, 20, 30 years on, you'll get that question, you can answer it, Britain or virtually anywhere. So, you know, times have changed. Um, I still have trouble with American sandwiches, though. You know, if you go and ask for a sandwich and, and mayo, I didn't get the first 30 words. I don't know what's in the sandwich I've just been given. So, anyway, that kind of culturally specific influence has always been around in American versus British English as much as anywhere else. But multiply that by all the places in the world where English is now being used, and you see now the extent of the problem. And as I said before, people don't realise what they're saying when they do these things. I've made quite a collection of these culture-specific things as I've travelled around. Here are a couple from British English, so that uh, you can sort of clue yourselves in. Things you might say without a second thought, which can be extremely confusing to anybody who doesn't share your cultural background. Oh, gee, it was, it was like Clapham Junction in there. Please? It was like Clapham Junction in there. Now, to understand that, you've got, think how much you've got to know. You've got to know, A, that Clapham Junction is a railway station in South London. B, you've got to know that it is the most complicated railway station in the history of British Rail, with more platforms going in more directions than any other station. And when it goes wrong, it goes catastrophically wrong, as it did just a week ago. To say it was like Clapham Junction in there means it was totally chaotic in there. Okay, now you're a translator, you're an interpreter, and your politician says it was like Clapham Junction in the meeting this afternoon. How are you going to translate that? What is the equivalent in your language of Clapham Junction? Is there a rail... Is, is it MIDI here? Uh, I, probably, uh, having gone through it last night. Um, I'm not quite sure, but I mean, is there an idiom in your language which is anything similar, or do you have to kind of rephrase the whole sentence in order to get at it? This is an example of what I mean by a culture-specific thing that one takes for granted, one doesn't think twice about it. Oh, this watch. Hmm. It's more Portobello Road than Bond Street. <laughs> what am I saying? More Portobello Road than Bond Street? If it were Bond Street, it would be a really swish watch, wouldn't it? Because Bond Street, if you know, and I suppose most people do, is a very upmarket street, so the watches are going to be high quality. But Portobello Road, how many people in the world, the English-speaking world, know of Portobello Market, where the watches are likely to be replicas and probably will break very quickly after you buy them? Who knows? Maybe they're good quality these days. But the point is, I'm making a cultural contrast there. What is the equivalent in Brussels? of Portobello Road and Bond Street. Is there an equivalent? Would one routinely say something like that? I don't know. But imagine a situation where I'm now talking to you in English about Brussels. You will drop that kind of thing into the conversation without a second thought, 
And me being a polite guy will just sort of say, you know, oh yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what the heck is she talking about? I have no idea. What, what is Portobello Road? You, you know, that's the thing. Sometimes you actually, because you want to be affable and social, you will make a remark and realise you've said the wrong thing. So now I'm in the Czech Republic this time, in a little town near the border called, in the south called Uheske Hradisci. And I'm at a film festival. And afterwards I'm talking to a couple of guys about the festival. They're from the Czech Republic, but they're, they're all speaking English. And one man says to the other, um, well, they've not met before, where do you live? And he says, such and such a street. And the other man says, well, I'm amazed, I, I live in that street too. Really, says the first one. What number do you live at? So 300, shall we say. The other one says, well, isn't that extraordinary? I live at 302. <laughs> and I say, so you can wave at each other every day then. <laughs> and they go, no. And I think, oh God, what have I said? You know, are they, are they, uh, have their wives fallen out? You know, what, what? I say, well, I mean, you'll, you'll see each other going off to work in the morning at least. No. And I'm feeling, oh Lord, you know, I just shut up then and let them carry on. Later, I asked my host, what did I say wrong? And he explained, can any of you guess what did I do wrong? What have I not understood culturally to do with streets and street numbering in that part of Europe? And maybe elsewhere. Not, yeah, you see, we're used to a, a, a contingent situation, aren't we? If we live at 300, then 302 is either next door or across the road. I mean, that's the way it is in Britain and the way here too. Yeah, I mean, you'd expect so. But not, yeah, yeah with exceptions. <laughs> but not there. There, house numbering depends on when the house was built and registered. So, number 300 might have been built at that end of the street on January the 1st, 1906. Number 301 might have been that end of the street. Number 302 might have been that end of the street. And so there's no reason on earth why they should be able to see each other every morning and wave to each other. It simply wasn't something that was in their conceptual makeup. And I got it horribly wrong. Not anymore, of course. So this is what I mean by cultural development of this kind. And the thing is that it, it's very understandable how this kind of thing developed when you think of the way in which English has become a global language over the past um, 50 years, 60 years only. English has been a global language forever? No, no. In the 18th century, in the 17th century, in the 16th century, English was being given no future at all. Richard Mulcaster, head teacher of Merchant Taylor's School in London, writes in 1582 that there is no reason for anybody in the world to know English. It is of no use, he says, beyond our shores. Why would anybody want to learn it anyway? It has no literature. What a bad year to be saying such a thing. <laughs> 1582 when Walter Raleigh is planning the first of his expeditions across the Atlantic and eventually, of course, it comes out as Virginia. 
1582, now we don't know very much about this, but in November 1582, a young man from Stratford-upon-Avon <laughs> got married. That we know. He then went to London and presumably to be an actor on the stage. The theatres were closed because of the plague, so he started to write poems. And then, if you believe the latest research, he spent one night with Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> and as a result, wrote Romeo and Juliet, which is amazing, though understandable. So some people say uh, they do the same. Um, Shakespeare, of course, changed the course of English literature. So within a hundred years or so, people were beginning to study English now because A, it was beginning to be global, it was established in America, and B, it had a literature to die for, not just Shakespeare, of course, but the whole period in question. And you get the concept of ESP coming to the fore, English for Shakespearean purposes. <laughs> That's an in-joke for English teachers. <laughs> 400 years on, the situation has changed dramatically. Two billion people speaking English around the world. But the statistics of Everybody in the world speaks English are put into the shade there by that, aren't they? I mean, the Sun at one point, you, the Sun newspaper at one point had a headline which said, you know, everyone in the world speaks English now. Well, a third of them do, and you don't have to go far off the beaten track before you find the people who don't. But still, that two billion is interesting because when you break it down into first language and second language and foreign language, these are the statistics that you get. I should qualify this by saying, never believe anybody who gives you statistics about language. Anybody. Because nobody, no country keeps accurate language statistics in censuses. And the, if they do, they're very general and they're not very precise. So I'm going to tell you now how many people speak English, but don't believe it. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the best guesses that people make. How many people speak English as a first language, as a mother tongue, father tongue if you prefer, parent tongue if you don't like either of those? About 400 million or so, only. About 400 million. Some people say it's a bit less, some people say it's a bit more. It all depends on whether you count under that total the various pidgin and creole Englishes around the world where people are not quite sure whether they're English or not. Well, how many people speak English as a second language, that is, in a country where it is an official second language of some kind? About 60 countries around the world do this. The answer there is, again, nobody knows, but it must be 600 million, 700 million, maybe more. It all depends what's happening in India. In India, something like a third of the population are supposed to be able to speak English these days. That's over 400 million people. That's more than the entire native-speaking population of the, of the world. So, say, six or seven hundred million. And then the other countries of the world where it's simply a foreign language, like Belgium and everywhere else in Europe, virtually, and South America and Central America and China. I mean, China's the big player here now. How many people speak English in China? Nobody knows. In the early 2000s, they said it was about 200 million. And they said they were going to double that figure by the time of the Olympics, so they probably did. Who knows? But the British Council, whom God preserve, say that at any one time in the world, there's about a billion people learning English in some shape or form. That's a thousand million. That includes everybody from beginners to advanced. So if we allow, say, two-thirds of them in as competent speakers of English, 
then we've got 400 million plus six or 700 million plus another six or 700 million. There's your two billion, you see, more or less. The important statistic to note is that for every one native speaker, there are now five non-native speakers. That's the statistic to note. So the center of gravity has shifted in the last 50 years from people like me, who have English as a first language, to people like many of you, who have English as a second language, or foreign language. And th this has huge implications straight away. What it means is that as you travel around the English-speaking world, you see these new varieties of English growing up very, very rapidly indeed. The reason is all to do with identity. Let's do a quick thought experiment. You're in charge, you're in charge in Nigeria, when Nigeria became independent. What are you going to do to show your independence linguistically? You will not want to keep with English. None of the colonial, ex-colonial nations wanted to keep the language of oppression as they saw it. But you're in charge in Nigeria, so what are you going to replace it with? You look around you, you see 450 languages. Which one are you going to choose? If you choose that one, they will not like it. If you choose that one, they will not like it. It's a recipe for disaster. And so most countries, not all, but most ex-colonial territories thought like this. Well, um, we'd better stay with English then. Better the devil you know. At least everybody hates it equally. <laughs> and then the magic happened. They adopted English and then they adapted it. In other words, as soon as they took on the language in their independent ethos, they started to change it. Quite consciously, by the way, um, I wrote, I, you know, I was around in those days, and I was in charge of a project called A Dictionary of English-Speaking Peoples. And I wrote to every newly independent nation that had English as a historical language and asked them, are you doing anything in relation to making English your new language? And they all wrote back, the universities and so on, they said, of course we are. And that's where these dictionaries of South African English and so on come from, you see. Because at the beginning they were saying, yes, we are going to make it our English now. It was a quite conscious process to develop a local identity through chiefly vocabulary and to a smaller extent, grammar and pronunciation. Chiefly vocabulary. And as you go around the English-speaking world now, this is what you encounter straight away. Not just the scenario that I mentioned a little while ago of all right, but in perfectly routine situations, you've all had this experience, I'm sure. You go into a restaurant in some part of the world and you say, can I have the English menu? And they give you a menu and you look at it and you say, so, sorry, can I have the English menu? And they say, that is the English menu. And you can't understand it because all the local foods and all the local drink is not translatable. And you have to learn that back on culture once again in order to understand what's going on. And you only have to think about what culture means in these environments in order to see the extent to which a vocabulary of thousands can grow up very quickly. Not just food and drink, but myths and legends, fauna and flora, the political situation. Oh, yes, the political situation. <laughs> David hates Nick. <laughs> what does that mean? 
Who are we talking about? Tories and Lib Dems? What is that all about? I mean, just think of all the vocabulary of politics that relates to your part of the world, all the nicknames, all the abbreviations and all of that. You can quickly see how that vocabulary builds up. When you go around the English-speaking world, just for the last couple of minutes of the talk, um, it is mainly vocabulary, but don't ignore grammar. Grammar does occasionally turn up to have local differences here and there. It's not such a big deal. Pronunciation is the interesting one. Let me just end with uh, the formal part of the talk with a comment on that. Because when you go around the English-speaking world, what you notice is not just the standard English and the standard accent, which makes us all understand each other. You notice also the local dialect, the local accent, which expresses local identity. And so as you go around the English-speaking world, what new accents are emerging? And there is one particular feature I want to draw your attention to. And the reason why I do it is because it's actually very difficult to read up about this thing in any book. You can't easily read about accents, can you, in a book, even though one tries. And it's the change in rhythm that is so noticeable around the English-speaking world these days. English traditionally has what's called a stress-timed rhythm. Titum, 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 titum. It's the heartbeat of English poetry. It's Shakespeare, it's Gray, the curfew tolls the knell of parting day. Titum, titum, titum. That's stress-timed rhythm, because the beats, the stresses, fall at roughly regular intervals in the stream of speech. If you've learnt English as a second language, you've probably had drills teaching that to you. The other kind of rhythm, of course, is syllable-timed rhythm, which is ratatatatat. Okay, so if I now start to speak English with a certain type of accent, you will understand me straight away. Eh? I mean, this is ratatatatatatat. This is typical French, typical Spanish. There are lots of languages where it's ratatatat. Now, no English speaker until recently ever had that syllable-timed English. But as you go around the English-speaking world now, this is what you're increasingly hearing. And not just from foreign learners, but from people who have learnt English right from the very beginning. You'd call them native speakers, even though it might be a second language context. And they now speak English in a syllable-timed way. So if you go to South Africa and you say to somebody there, where are you from? And he says, I'm from South Africa. He doesn't say, I'm from South Africa. He might do. There are some people who speak like that. But if he's Afrikaans, for example, he'll say, I'm from South Africa. I'm from South Africa. Go to the subcontinent of India, and virtually all of those 400 million people will speak in a syllable-timed way. They will not say, the consequences of what I'm saying are very important. They will say, the consequences of what I am saying are very important. The consequences of what I am saying are very important. It's ra ta 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 And of course, the famous case, the one, you might think, is that ever going to influence English? And you think, well, maybe, maybe not. In the long term, it might do. But the variety that has influenced English already, amongst young people at least, is from the Caribbean, where rapping and hip-hop are syllable-timed English. They do not say there, most of them, you know, I'm from Jamaica, ti-tum-ti-tum-ti. -tum See, I'm from Jamaica, ra-ta-ta-ta-ta, man. You know, <laughs> it is rat tat tat, isn't it? Uh, you're looking at me in a very serious sort of way there. <laughs> but you know, this, 
what's happening around the English-speaking world is that this kind of new rhythm is becoming the norm in so many places. And so if one looks at the future of English and in the discussion, there are all kinds of other aspects of this that I haven't yet had time to go into, like the technological side of things and so on. But the uh, thinking ahead, I wouldn't be at all surprised to find that in 50 years' time or 100 years' time, anybody giving a lecture to Full Circle will have a very staccato, syllabic kind of rhythm, and it'll all sound very, very different. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to our talk. We'll be back soon with more thought-provoking content. So if you enjoyed this talk, please consider following our podcast on Spotify and other podcast streaming services. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with our events at Full Circle Ideas on Facebook or watch our other talks and interviews on YouTube at Full Circle Brussels. Until next time, 